following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. John chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 to 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a well-known account from the Gospels, a well-known conversation that Jesus has at this well with this woman of Samaria. And many people have looked at this text, and they've seen here, for example, uh, a model of how we ought to evangelize. Here is, here is Jesus, the model evangelist. And notice how he gets into this conversation with this woman and how he draws her out and how he steers the conversation to spiritual things. He starts with a practical request, give me a drink. But he uses that to strategically direct her to a spiritual topic. Now, there are times when we need to be thoughtful about how we engage others in sharing the gospel. That's true. But I wouldn't want to reduce this conversation this meeting between Jesus and this woman, woman as simply a, uh, an example or a model for us, a strategy for evangelism. And I would say Jesus isn't trying to be strategic here to direct the, con- the conversation. That's not what he's doing. There's a deeper reason why Jesus has met with this woman. Now, John tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Now, that's true from a geographical point of view. He was leaving Judea. He was going up to Galilee. And that took him through Samaria. So yeah, he had to go through Samaria. But there is a deeper significance to that phrase. Because John is telling us that he, he needed at that time to go through Samaria. Because this is a divine appointment. Uh, the father is directing the son to meet with this woman. Now, he is a Jew. And she is a Samaritan. And she, she questions him. She's surprised. Uh, You, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink of water? Uh, She's shocked that a Jew would speak to her. And the reason for that is because of the the historical context and the long history of animosity between Samaritans and Jews. And we can look at this account, and we can see it in the light of that background. And it is helpful to have that background. They do get into a conversation about worship. And where right worship happens. Does it happen in Jerusalem? That's where the Jews worship. Does it happen on Mount Gerizim? That's where the Samaritans worship. And there's a history behind that. Those two locations for worship. And also there was a difference between Samaritans and Jews even in the scriptures that they used. The Samaritans had a smaller Bible. Just the first five books of Moses. But the Jews had the full scriptures. The law and the prophets. And the Psalms. So even their biblical text was different. So when it comes to the matters of faith, the matters of worship, there was serious disagreement, to say the least, between Samaritans and Jews. So we we can look at that long history of animosity between Samaritans and Jews. And Jews hated Samaritans. And that's not too strong of a term. They hated. They disdained the Samaritans. They saw them not only as, as a mixed people, ethnically, And that's true. 
If you look at the history of the Samaritans, they, they uh, intermingled with the surrounding nations, but also saw them as idolaters, as those who compromised the right worship of God. And we see that even in, in 2 Kings 17, verse 33. This is kind of a summary statement about Samaritans. They feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. It wasn't just a matter of intermarriage. It was a matter of of syncretism, of mixed worship. It was a compromised religion. So this is the source of the animosity between Samaritans and Jews. It's helpful to have that background. But Jesus, in his conversation with this woman, isn't isn't, uh, so concerned to highlight the fact that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. That's That's not the significance. That's not what matters. And he doesn't point to her Samaritan identity. He actually points to her sinful identity. She's a sinner. And he confronts her with her sin. And what we have here is not simply a conversation between a Jew and a Samaritan woman, but between the Son of God and a sinner. And it's important for us as we consider this account to see it in the broader context, not just of history, but of the Gospel of John itself. And if we just remember where we've come in the Gospel of John, it will help us to appreciate the power and the significance of this conversation, this meeting between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. So let's remember how John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The Word became flesh. The Word took on our weakness, our need. And John reminds us of that reality. Jesus was wearied from the journey. He was tired. He was thirsty. The Word became flesh. But John says, in this Word who became flesh, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And he tells us, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son who's in the heart of the Father. He has made him known. And here we see Jesus meeting with this woman. And she's a Samaritan, and she's concerned about the the fathers, our fathers, our father Jacob, the patriarchs. But Jesus points her beyond that lineage, beyond the patriarchs, the fathers, to the Father. And he is the one who reveals the Father, who makes the Father known. And he is there to make known to her, her heavenly father. We're told that John the Baptist is the light, uh, the witness to the light, the witness to the life. He's the witness to the word, to the son. That's how he's introduced. And so when he's introduced this way, we are waiting to hear what he has to say. What's his witness? What's his testimony? And you'll remember when John speaks, he stands up and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on to say, uh, He is the one, the Son, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's John's testimony about the Son. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Baptism has to do with water. Well, here is the Lamb of God. Here is the Son of God with this Samaritan woman. 
And he is here as the Lamb of God to take away her sin. And he's here to offer her living water. John goes on to report what happened at the wedding of Cana, where, God, uh, where Jesus turned water into wine. And remember that in the first century, it was the groom who was responsible for supplying wine and the blessing of wine at the wedding. And at this wedding, they ran out of wine. But Jesus supplied the wine. And we're told that this was the first sign that revealed his glory. And the glory that was revealed is the glory that he is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the true groom. He is the one that has come to redeem and save his bride. The one who has come to bless her. And he took that water and he turned it into wine. And he blessed that wedding. And he blessed that couple with that wine. Well, here is the bridegroom with this woman. And... We're told that she's had five husbands. We're told that the man she is now with, the sixth, is not her husband. But here is the true bridegroom from heaven who has met her. He's the seventh. He's the perfect one. He's the bridegroom that has come to take her, to redeem her. And wells are places where engagements happen. The engagement of Isaac happened at a well. The engagement of Jacob. The engagement of Moses. Uh, brides are found at wells. And here is the bridegroom from heaven who has come for his bride. And then in the second part of John chapter 2, Jesus is the temple. He says, don't worry about this building. Look to me. My body is the temple. Now this woman's concerned about worship. She's concerned about temples. Remember, Jesus is the temple. He is the center of worship. And then we, t- we turn to John chapter 3. And remember what we, heard, what we hear there. This conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again. He needs to be born by the Spirit of God. He needs this new birth, this new life. Only the Spirit of God can give him this new life. Now, Nicodemus presumes to know. We know that you're a teacher. But when Jesus talks about his need for a new birth by the Spirit, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, do you, the teacher of Israel, not know? You don't understand? Now, Jesus says the same thing to the Samaritan woman. You don't know. You don't know what you worship, what you worship. But just as he was teaching and revealing himself to Nicodemus, so he's here to reveal himself to the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus needed renewal by the Spirit, new birth. This woman needs renewal by the Spirit, new birth. And then John chapter 3 concludes with John the Baptist rejoicing that he hears the voice of the bridegroom. And then he goes on to say, he is the son of God who gives the spirit without measure. And then we have this account of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. So this is an encounter of the son of God, the bridegroom of heaven, the word made flesh with this Samaritan woman. And we can see all of the themes of the gospel so far picked up and developed in this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. But there's a new theme that emerges that is, that is significant. And it's what I want to focus on in the next few minutes. And that's the theme of worship. That's where the conversation goes, to the question of worship. And Jesus tells this woman, the Father is seeking true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and truth. And I want to consider that. The Father is, is seeking true worshipers. That's the first thing. 
But the second thing we need to recognize is this woman is not a true worshiper. And it's not just because she's a Samaritan. It's because she's a sinner. Sinners do not worship the Father in spirit and truth. Sinners cannot worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus has come to redeem this woman to make her a worshiper. And then finally, what does it mean that we worship the Father in spirit and in truth? And the gift of living water that Jesus offers, he says, becomes in us a spring that wells up to eternal life. And that welling up of eternal life expresses itself in worship. And we know such a person. And the Father is seeking such people because they worship in spirit and truth. And I want to consider that too. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? So first, the Father is seeking true worshipers. Now look at verse 27. When the disciples return and they find Jesus talking to this woman, they marvel. And notice what John says. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? Nobody asked those questions. But John actually wants us to think about those questions. Yeah, what is Jesus seeking? Why is he talking to this woman? And we know what he is seeking because we've just been told that the Father is seeking. The Father is seeking those who worship him, true worshipers in spirit and in truth. The Father has sent his Son because the Father is seeking true worshipers. And Jesus was seeking her and talking with her because the Father had sent him to seek her out to make her a true worshiper. And that's why we have been made, and that's why we have been saved, so that we might become true worshipers of the Father in spirit and in truth. Some of you may know this, the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. Uh, It asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And what that means is, why, why were we made? Why do we exist? What's our purpose? What's the end for which God made us? And it rightly gives this answer. This is an answer that is well supported throughout Scripture. The chief end of man is that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made to worship him. We were made to give him glory. Now, we are all sinners. Uh, Sinners do not glorify God. Sinners do not worship God. Sinners cannot worship God. And God's word tells us that the wages of sin is death. Sinners are dead. The woman that Jesus is talking to is dead in her sins. She's dead in her trespasses and sins. Outside of Christ, each one of us is dead in our trespasses and sins. Consider what David says in the Psalms. Psalm 6, for example, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The dead don't praise you, O Lord. Save my life, because the dead don't praise you. Psalm 30, verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Again, David's crying out, in in my death, 
Because I'm dead, I don't praise you. The dead don't praise you. But not only that, will it tell of your faithfulness? There's no declaration. There's no witness. There's no evangelism. Now, this woman is dead in her trespasses and sins. She doesn't know what she worships. The Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. And the Father has sent his Son to redeem sinners. To redeem those who are dead, who don't praise him. And notice that this woman not only becomes a true worshiper, but she also becomes one who tells of God's faithfulness. She becomes an evangelist. And Jesus points to not her Samaritan identity, but to her sinful identity. She's a sinner. And he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from pointing directly to shining a bright light on her sinful condition, on who she is as a sinner. Yes, you've had five husbands, but the man you are now with is not your husband. Now there, in that statement, in that revelation, it's a revelation of her, of her sinful life. The man she is now living with, the implication is the man she is now sleeping with, is not her husband. But she's also had five husbands already. We don't know her backstory. We don't know that, that history. But in the ancient world, and in fact in any time of history, I think we would all recognize that that is, that is a history, a personal history. Yes, that is no doubt checkered with sin. But also checkered with pain, with hurt, with brokenness, with abuse. So this woman is, yes, she's dead in her trespasses and sins. She's dead in her guilt. But she's also a woman that needs healing, that needs restoration. And Jesus, in saying this to her, lets her know, I know your true state. I know your true condition. I know your heart. I know you. Now, she doesn't know her, or she doesn't know him. And he says to her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew the one who asks you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the one who is talking to you. Now, what is the gift of God? We're reading this account. Do we know what the gift of God is? Well, we've just read in John's Gospel that God so loved the world, John chapter three sixteen, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The son is the gift of the father. God so loved the world, he gave the son. But here Jesus makes a distinction between the gift of God and the one who is speaking to you, the son. Is there another gift? Well, there is. Because just in the verses that we would have just read at the end of John 3, before John 4, we would have heard that the Son, whom the Father has given, gives the Spirit without measure. The Son gives the Spirit. What is the gift of God? It's the Spirit. And the Son is the one who gives the Spirit, and he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, Jesus says this, and then offers her living water. And this tells us that the living water is an image of the Spirit. The living water represents the Spirit. Now we know this from later in the Gospel. It becomes clear in John chapter 7 where John tells us specifically that the water that Jesus gives is the Spirit. So that will become clear. 
But already now there's, there's a, a connection between the Spirit and water. He baptizes with the Spirit. We're born again by water and the Spirit. Here he offers her living water. And the one who offers her living water is the Son who was given, the Son who was sent as the Savior of the world. Whoever believes in him, God so loved the world, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's significant that just a few verses later, and we'll come to this next week, but the woman goes and gives testimony to her community of the one that she's met. And they declare that he is indeed the Savior of the world. She has just met the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the reason that Jesus can offer her living water, the reason that Jesus can baptize her with the Spirit, is because he's also the one who takes away her sin. He's redeemed her. And then offers her the gift of this living water. And it's not explicit in this, in this conversation. It's not explicit in the text. But John is very careful to point us to the cross in this text. Because notice what time of day this is all happening. John tells us it was about the sixth hour. That's very important. He's not just telling us that just so we uh, have an idea of what time of day it was. He's telling us that because the sixth hour is the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. It's the hour of his death on the cross. It's the hour when he took away the sin of the world. So yes, the Father is seeking those who would worship him. But he is seeking sinners, to save sinners to worship him. And he sent his Son to redeem and to save sinners. And the hour, the sixth hour, is the in truth. To be a true worshiper of God is to be one who has been redeemed and saved by the shed blood of Christ. His blood takes away the sin of the world. His blood washes the sin of this woman. And he can declare to her, the hour is, is coming and is now here. Because the reality of that salvation, that he will work, that he will win, is available to her right now in that conversation. And it's available to us right now as we hear the gospel, as we know his presence with us. Jesus says, the hour is coming, the hour is now here, when those who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's the hour when Christ took away the sin of the world. And remember that as he died on the cross, and when he had, when he had breathed his last, the Roman centurion pierced his side, and what poured forth? John is very careful to tell us. Water and blood. Water poured forth. It's the, wa- it's the living water. And he tells us that this living water will well up in us, a spring of eternal life. And here's where we come to our final point. What does it mean to be those who worship him in spirit and truth? Well, the water that Jesus gives us, the water of the spirit, is the water of new birth. It's the water of renewal, the water of resurrection, the water of eternal life. It's life-giving water. It's living water. And that water transforms us. And those who have been born again, those who have been renewed, redeemed, those who know the eternal life that the Son offers, uh, we have been made into true worshipers. 
those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we could understand this from a, from a subjective point of view. It speaks to the character of the one who worships. It speaks to the, to the transforming work that the Spirit works in us. We become those who worship God in integrity. We worship him in purity of heart and spirit. We worship him in truth. We, we, we know the Son. We have the revelation of the gospel. We have the revelation of God's word. We worship him in spirit and in truth, in heart and mind. We have been redeemed and purified worshipers. And, it, and it's right to see it that way. We're a redeemed people of God. And the significance of, uh, of worship is not the place of worship. It doesn't, we are in a sanctuary right now, but it doesn't matter if uh, we were here or some other place. What matters is the worshipers. It's us who gather. That's where true worship happens. That's what, that's what the Father is seeking. So it's not this place or that place. It's who we are. We are redeemed people, redeemed to worship. But there's a deeper meaning and significance to this. And we should understand spirit here as capital S spirit. And truth here as capital T, truth. Because the eternal life that we receive is the very life of God himself. It's the very life of the Son of God. It's the eternal life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the living God. We receive his life. That's eternal life. That's the life that we are given. And as we read on in the gospel, Jesus will declare that the Spirit glorifies the Son. I will send the Spirit and he will glorify me. And then he goes on to pray, Father, glorify me as I have glorified you. And what we're told there is that there is an eternal mutual glorification within the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit who delight in one another, who love one another, who live in an eternal communion together, glorify one another. And Jesus is saying that I'm giving you living water that will well up in you a spring of eternal life that is the very life of God himself. You will enter into that life in the worship that you will now engage. The worship that I am leading you into is going to be a participation in the mutual glorification of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we will worship in spirit, the Holy Spirit, and in truth. And remember what Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. If you knew the gift of God, the Spirit of God, if you knew the one who is speaking to you, the truth, then you would ask and you would receive living water. I would give you living water. The Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's a reminder to us, especially in difficult times like this, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and transformed by his spirit into true worshipers. And even in a very small gathering like this, We uh, are gathered in the name of the Son of God, the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. And our worship, our glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is a participation in the eternal life of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The mutual glorification of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And whatever's going on in the world around us right now, uh, we know that we abide in that communion. And our worship is caught up in that eternal mutual glorification. And I have to say, for me, personally, you know, whatever's happening in the world around us, that is the reality and the gift and the blessing of our worship together. That's also why we can't help but come together, even if it's in small groups, to worship and, and sing God's praises. 
We were redeemed and saved for this purpose. And that woman could not just keep that to herself. She couldn't help but go and tell those in her community. Whatever her reputation in that community, she came and declared the good news of the Son of God, of the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that spring of of living water welling up in us, of eternal life welling up in us, is overflowing. It overflows in our worship, but it overflows in our witness. And if we are true worshipers of God, we cannot help but be witnesses to Christ, to the Son. Now, let's come to the Lord's table. And here we receive the the grace, we receive the blessing that our Lord has won for us. And we're reminded of the gift of God that he sent his son. And the body of his son was broken and bled for us. We're reminded of that in this bread. His blood was shed for us. We're reminded of that in this cup. And so we come to this table as true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and truth. But like the woman at the well, the same gospel confronts us with our sinful condition. And it exposes that sin. So we need to acknowledge that, confess our sin. We'll do that now just in the quietness of our own hearts. And then uh, I'll lead us in this corporate prayer of confession together. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.